Um, yeah. Hey, good morning, y'all. That was kind of weak. Good morning. All right, all right. Well, that wasn't weak. That wasn't weak. Um, anyway, my name is uh, Ed Griffin Hagen. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at my church, and uh, I want to welcome uh, our first-time guests for sure, and also want to welcome the folks watching online. Before we get started this morning, let me pray real, real quick. Lord, we love you today. We thank you for your grace. Lord, we thank you for your mercy. Lord, we ask you to be here this morning as we have a conversation. Lord, I know there are people here that just need to, to hear your words. And so really my prayer, Lord, is just get me out of the way and, and say what you need to say to who you need to say it. So this morning, um, we're in week six or seven, I think, of uh, uh, a series of Running with the Giants series. And we're going to be in a passage in a little book that is sandwiched between Jonah and Nahum. In the Old Testament, the book of Micah, it's the 33rd book in the Bible, start with Genesis 1 all the way up through Micah. Micah was a prophet. He prophesied in the 8th century before Christ, 700 to 750 years before then, about the same time that Isaiah was prophesying. And he was from a town, uh, uh, Micah was from a town about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem called Morasheth. And he was his family, the whole town. They were poor peasant farmers. Um, you got to understand that that at that time Israel, the kingdom was divided. You had Israel was in the north, and and just a little above Jerusalem, down to the south was Judah. And they were all peasants, and they were all poor, and they were all farmers. And it's a little weird though, because at that time money was flowing, and the economy in Israel was sort of rocking and rolling. The temple was crowded. Giving was, there was no middle class really. There was the poor peasant farmers and the elites. And, and so money was flowing. There were rear ends in the seats in the temple. And um, I guess that, that they thought that's kind of what it was about. What could be better? There was, there was folks that were showing up. Um, the money was there. The giving was there. And I guess that's what they thought this religion thing was all about, right? The ones with the biggest buildings win. But apparently, that's kind of not what God thinks. They had, they were all over their rituals, they were all over all of the little things that they thought they had to do, but something was missing, and what was missing was really the, the biggest and most important stuff of all, and it was goodness and mercy and humility and walking with God, Israel had become uncaring, they had become arrogant, they had they, become um, uncompassionate. And all of those elites, they were talking, but they weren't really walking the talk that they were talking. Offer, but sure, offerings were being made and people were showing up and they were going through all of those motions. But on the same side, they were... Uh, in their business dealings, they were aggressive and they were oppressive in, in all of the business goings on. There were exploited policies that they were enacting that got the rich really richer and, and, and they were, they were kind of oppressing the most vulnerable uh, people in society. And then in Micah, in chapter two, in verse two actually, in, uh, in chapter two, he says, the temple folks covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. 
And Micah exposes the the judges and the prophets and the priests and all of the rulers really for just what they what they were and that was violent they were greedy they were uh the prophets were there was tons of false prophets they were cruel and then in Micah chapter 5 he calls for Judah to get ready Judah the southern kind of part of the kingdom he calls them to get ready to be attacked which ultimately happens about 130 years later, they get deported off. So this morning we're going to be in Micah chapter 6. Particularly we're going to be in verse 8 of chapter 6. But I want to read you the first seven verses. I want us to look at the first seven verses. And we're going to look at this in the message uh, a translation. It's really not a translation, it's a paraphrase. But it's a little easier for us to get our arms around leading up to verse 8. And I want you to understand that these first well, really the whole chapter is an indictment by the Lord on Israel. It's almost like it's a courtroom setting. Matter of fact, it's almost like uh, God is suing Israel. God's the plaintiff and Israel is the defendant. So keep that kind in your mind as we run through these first seven verses. It says, listen now, listen to God. Take your stand in court. If you have a complaint, tell the mountains. Make your case to the hills. And now mountains, hear God's case. Listen, jury earth, for I'm bringing charges against my people. I'm building a case against Israel. Dear people, and this is God talking now. Dear people, how have I done you wrong? Have I burdened you? Have I worn you out? Answer me. I delivered you from a bad life in Egypt. I paid a good price to get you out of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and Aaron and Miriam to boot. And so to prove his faithfulness, God reminded Israel God is in the reminding business. He, he reminded Israel of all the crazy things that He had done for them in the book of Exodus. He, he rescued them out of 400 years of slavery, of, of a horrible life, of working in the fields, of, of, of making mortar and bricks and building all these cities for Pharaoh in Egypt. And then right in the midst of that, God sends Moses and Aaron to lead them out of Egypt. And miraculously he opens up the Red Sea and they walk through and they're on their way to the promised land. And God gave them good leaders. He, he gave them you know, Moses and Aaron and, and Miriam. And then, so let's jump back into Micah. He says, remember. Again, he says, remember what Balak, king of Moab, tried to pull and how Balaam, son of Beor, turned the tables on him. So they're still on their way to the promised land out of Egypt. And this is in the book of Numbers, chapter 22 or 23. Balak, who was the king of Moab, called on Balaam to curse the Israelites. And whenever Balaam opened up his mouth to curse Israel, just a blessing came out. It happened three times, and he he just realized that you cannot curse who God has blessed. So jump back into Micah. Remember, he says it again, remember all the stories about Shittim and Gilgal Keep all God's salvation stories fresh and present. So they're on the journey to Shittim. And this is in Joshua 3 and 4. And they had to go through through and cross the river Jordan. And God did the same thing He did in the Red Sea. He opens up the, uh, uh, the Jordan River and they cross, they go across on dry ground. And they even took stones and they laid stones down as a memorial so that they wouldn't forget what God had done there. And that's not all. When they get to the promised land, over and over, 
uh, uh, armies rise up against them and God always, always delivers them. And I'd say this, have you ever gotten uh, off course? Have you ever gotten off track in your walk with God? I would imagine you have. All of us have. We're all kind of prone to wander. We all get distracted. I've had times in my life, plenty of times in my life, where I've nearly forgotten, I've, I've kind of wandered so far that I've nearly forgotten what it is that God wants me to do. And then He, he like reels me back in. He calls me back. He searches me out and He seeks me and he, and he finds me. And it's like He says, dude, it's that remember thing. It's like He says, just remember where you were when you first gave your life to me. Just remember when I came alongside and I just nudged you just a little bit. Remember what it was like to walk with me. Remember the confidence it gave you. Remember the joy it gave you. Remember the peace. That's what God is saying in Micah chapter 6. That's what God is saying to Israel. And that is what He says to us every day. Let's jump back in. The next verses uh, are, are Israel's response back to God. And you hear a little bit of an attitude in it. So know that. Listen to what they say. They're responding back to Him. He says, remember what all I did, and then this is their response to him. They say, how can I stand up before God and show proper respect to the high God? Should I bring an armload of offerings topped off with yearling calves? Would God be impressed if I brought thousands of rams with buckets and barrels of olive oil? Do you just want my firstborn? He says, or they say, would he be moved if I sacrificed my firstborn child? You want to take my kids, my precious baby? Would that cancel out my sin? They caught, really caught the attitude. And they think that they can buy him off. And that's what was going on for about 75 years. They thought they could buy God off. And this attitude shows that they haven't the vaguest idea what God required of them. God made a covenant with His people. And it wasn't about money, and it wasn't about business, and it wasn't about putting... Uh, Heinies in the seats. It wasn't about prophets. It was about a relationship with Him and them. So y'all listen to Micah chapter 6, verse 8. This is kind of our, our verse. Verse 8 says, He has told you, O man, and whenever a prophet says, O man, that means he's, he's talking to all of Israel. So he says, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do three things. To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So what did God require of them? God wasn't impressed with the ceremonies. He wasn't impressed with all of the fancy worship and all of those gifts. So according to verse 8, the list of what God required of Israel is this. He required them to act justly. He required them to love kindness. And He required them to walk humbly with their God and so if you consider, that's in your worship guide, by the way. Um, if you consider those three things, if, if y'all are, if y'all are the jury and you consider those three things, then Israel is guilty. And I'd ask you this, are, are today, are we guilty? Is the country that we live in guilty? When you look around, do we act justly? Do we love kindness and mercy? And are we walking humbly? Matthew chapter 23, all of chapter 23, Jesus is laying the hammer down on the Pharisees, particularly verse 23. What's the whole thing, but I want to read 
I want us to look at verse 23. He says, this is Jesus talking. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, your tithing, your ponying up their money. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, and you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Both things are important. And what I want us to take home from this passage is that God does not only require our gifts and our worship. And I'm not saying that our gifts and our worship are, are completely unimportant. Of course that's not what I'm saying. But it's not all that God requires of us. It is about our lives. It is about our character. It's about our behavior. It's not just about coming to church, about giving to church, about being on the worship team, or being in a small group, or being in a Bible study. And we can do all of those things, and yet God could still be a little ticked. It is about the kind of life we live. It is about justice and kindness and humility. Now let's dig in just a little bit on those three things. First of all, God requires us to act justly. And if we're talking about justice, we're talking about maintaining honest relationships with each other. And doing justice is kind of on two levels. A personal level and on a social level. And on a personal level... We can't ever act in a way that might produce injustices right where we are. That means in our businesses, in our, in our work life, we have got to be honest with the people that we work with, with the people, for the people that we work for, for our clients, for our customers. Even if they won't know the difference, we have to act justly. And it means really to, to be honest in every single thing that we do. A butcher one time was asked how his life changed after he accepted Christ. And he said, I stopped weighing my thumb. Because every time he would weigh a piece of meat, his thumb was on the scale. And every time he sold a piece of meat to a client, to a customer, he's overcharging them by an ounce. And he said today he makes up a little bit on every one of them for all the years that he was ripping people off. And that's what happened to Zacchaeus, the tax collector, when he met Jesus. Here's what he said. He said, Lord, here now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay them back four times that amount. And do you know what Jesus said to him? He said, today salvation has come to this house. So on the personal level, on the social level, we, we, us, need to be in the front of the line on social causes of real injustices, not fake injustices, of real injustices in our community. It ain't the government's job. It's not. It's our job. It's my job. It is, it's your job. It's the church's job. It is not Washington's job. That's in your worship guide too. Um, the charge is not to Washington. The charge is to us. We are who are, are the people that are supposed to do that. We're sent people. That doesn't mean sent to the foyer of the church. That means we are sent into the streets. So if we see injustices happening and we do nothing, then we're on the wrong side. If we're neutral in situations of injustices, then we've chosen the side of the oppressor. If an elephant has his foot 
on the tail of the mouse and you say you're neutral, the mouse is not going to be crazy about your neutrality. As Christians, as Christians, as believers, as people that name the name of Christ, we've got to be concerned about the widows and the fatherless and the orphans and the, and the needy and the, and the weak and the oppressed and the strangers. So number one, we've got to act justly. Number two, God requires us to love mercy. And that means that our hearts ought to be filled with compassion and kindness towards one another. The Hebrew word that Micah uses that he translates as mercy, chesed is the word, and it's the idea of, of love and fidelity and covenant. In other words, the faithful love that we're talking about is covenantal love. It's the kind of love that says, I signed a piece of paper and I said I'm going to love you till the day I die. In our covenant with God, in my covenant with God, my commitment is a commitment to God, but it's also a commitment to you. And in your commitment to God, in your covenant with God, it's a commitment to Him, but it's also a commitment to me. It's a commitment to each other. That's why Paul in second, y'all listen to these two verses. This is Second Corinthians um, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Praise be to God the Father, God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of, com- of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. He comforts me in all of my troubles. Why does He do that? There's a benevolent side of it because I need comfort and He's comforting me. But the other side is the rest of this, this, uh, this passage. So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. If I don't leverage what God has done for me for somebody else, I mean, what good is that? If I don't leverage my salvation for somebody else's forever, what good is that? If I don't leverage, if God puts His arm around me and comforts me and I don't put my other arm around somebody else and comfort, what good is that? That's what that passage is about. And the scriptural concept, this is in your worship guide, the scriptural concept of loving mercy always involves helping those who are in need or in distress. It always involves helping somebody that is in distress. Some people are weaker than we are. Some people are, are poorer than we are. And we have got to help them whenever we can help them. We need to carry one another's burdens. That's what we're called to do. And you may be asking yourself, you're sitting there saying, well, how in the world... There's too many people that need help. How in the world do you expect me to help all of them? Forget that. Just forget that. You help one person at a time. And you start with the person that is nearest to you. Nobody said you got to help the whole world. You help one person at a time. And another person helps. If the church is doing what they're supposed to do, what we're supposed to do, that is the way that it works. So you have, you're called to act justly. You're called to love, kindness, and mercy. And the last requirement is to walk humbly with your God. First Peter, First uh, Peter five five says this. He says he says clothe yourselves, wear this, put on humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud and shows favor to the humble. And that word walk that's in Micah six eight, walk with God, walk humbly with God. That word word walk is a it's about a way of pursuing life. It's not about uh, literally walking by foot with God, but it means in our day-to-day walk through life that our day-to-day walk through life is with God. When we walk humbly with Him, 
it requires us, really, first of all, to understand who we are before God. And we're a sinner. And we're a sinner that is desperately in need of the grace in God through Christ. We walk humbly with God when we come to Him in prayer. And my prayer life, personally, could be about a thousand times better. And this is how it it usually goes. It's something at least like this. Dear Lord, today I'm I'm so far I'm doing okay. I hadn't gossiped, I hadn't cussed, I hadn't lost my temper, I hadn't been greedy, I hadn't been self-centered, I hadn't been selfish, I hadn't been nasty, but I'm fixing to roll over and get out of the bed and I'm going to need your help for the rest of the day. So, so what, can y'all, y'all, y'all with me on that? I mean, so what, what is humility? And, and here's what humility is. Humility is having a modest or having a, this is in your worship guide, having a low view of your importance. It's having a low or a modest view of, of one's importance. To walk humbly with God is to live carefully and to acknowledge that I just don't have it all going on. That we just don't have it all perfect. But we're walking with Him. And it's that we don't have it all perfect before God and we don't have it all perfect before other folks. So the rest of that passage in, in, uh, in 1 Peter 5, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that He may lift you up in due time. So let's see how does this play out in the life of Christ. When God chose, and yes, God chose. God has a chooser. He chose to connect with humans. And when He did that, He did it as a servant. Which was the most unlikely, craziest way to connect. Because servants are usually invisible. Servants have no power. Servants wear a a, a white uniform and they do the lowest of tasks. They seem not even to be there unless somebody needs them to do something. People look past them. They rarely acknowledge even that they they exist. And they live, their status is kind of at the bottom of the barrel. So you think, why in the world would he choose to come as a servant? And I can only think of, of one reason why he would choose to come as a servant. And that is this. It is the very nature, worship God, it is the very nature of God to serve. It's his very nature. It's who he is. And if it wasn't, what hope would there be? Because we were hopelessly lost in our sin. We were hopelessly, helplessly unable to make ourselves acceptable to God through works or through the law. Through it, we can't do it ourselves. And Jesus served us. He served us by making an eternal relationship with the Father possible through His life through a sacrificial death on a cross, and through the resurrection. And if God connected with me and you as a servant, then that's a model of the way that we need to connect with the people in the world. And of course, that is contrary to our self-centeredness, probably. Not probably. It is contrary to our selfish sort of nature. But you and I, we are never, ever more like Jesus than when we serve others. We're never more like Him 
than when we serve others. But I gotta make a little bit of a distinction because if we, if we set out to be a, so if we, if we rip open our shirt and we have a big S on our, on our chest and it says servant and we've got all the bumper tags and we've got all the, all this stuff that we're, we want to be the servant, you know, then that can become mechanical. It can become, um, inauthentic, maybe. But if servanthood is seen as the deepest way that we identify with Christ, if it inhabits our being, if it permeates us, if, if it does that, then serving will be a natural, almost second, just second, it just happens. It kind of, it's an, it would become like a unconscious expression of Christ living through us. It's not only what we do, but it becomes who we are. And this is the main point in Matthew chapter 25. Starting in verse 34 to 46. It's 12 verses. And I want us to look at these 12 verses. And there's two, Matthew's writing about and Jesus is talking about two different, two different groups of people. And I want you to hear what he says in this. Y'all really listen to this. I want you to hear what he says about serving in this passage. This is Matthew 25 starting in verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, he's got folks on his right, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, is Jesus talking, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we, when did, I didn't see you. When did we see you a stranger and invite you in and needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then he's going to say to the folks on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And they also, they also are going to answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and didn't help you? And he's going to reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do, for the least of these brothers and sisters you did not do for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment, or uh, go away to eternal punishment. But the righteous, the ones over here, away to eternal life. So the people that served by feeding the hungry, that clothing the naked, by, by visiting the sick, in, or the sick in prison, those, these people, they weren't keeping a journal of everything that they did because it just was who they are. It just was their, it just was their nature. I want y'all to think about that passage and listen to this song.
all you can afford His blankets and all coats had since the war He stands on the corner of Barber and Lyon But I pretend I see him for the 21st time I had to turn this off because you wouldn't want to hear me sing. So, look, it's not about the robe. It's about the towel. You have no idea what I'm talking about, but you will in just a minute. From the beginning, from the beginning to the end, the, the first image, the first earthly image that we get of Jesus at the very beginning of His life is as a baby born in a, bar, a filthy barn with nasty animals and livestock. And that scene that we get, that scene announces humility and, and lowliness and, and vulnerability and weakness. <clears throat> and the last image that we get of Jesus at the end of His earthly life is a broken body hanging on a cross. And that scene communicates humiliation and suffering and some would say maybe defeat. 
And neither the opening scene of his life nor the closing scene of his life suggests anything other than a life of humble service, which is the life of the towel, the way of the towel. And in between those two, in between that birth and in between that, that death and resurrection, there were hundreds of scenes that suggested a towel kind of mission. Seeking the lost, miracles, um, touching the poor, casting out demons, doing good, teaching kingdom values, nurturing people, praying, fasting, all kind of other things, all kind of other, all kind of other service to humankind. And his life was given to carrying a towel. The towel of a humble, obedient, and ultimately a suffering servant. There's two metaphors, two metaphors. Every day we've got a choice. Are we gonna, are we gonna, are we gonna live the life of the robe? Or are we gonna live the life of the towel? And both of those are found in the scriptures, but only one is appropriate for Jesus' followers. In biblical times, when a, when a robe was given, like that, when a robe was given, it was considered a special honor. When somebody was installed into, uh, into like an office, the symbol was a robe that was appropriate for that office. And after three years, the disciples that were walked with him every day for three years, they didn't get it. They're still pursuing the way of the robe. Matthew records a story of the mother of James and John who approached Jesus and she did. She knelt down in front of him to ask him a favor. And she and James and John were kind of in this together and she requested the robe for, the, for her two sons for Jesus' kingdom because she had in her mind that it was an earthly kingdom, that Jesus was coming to throw Rome out of Israel and he was going to set up an earthly kingdom. And she wanted, I don't know, she wanted James to be the Secretary of Agriculture and she wanted John to be the Secretary of Defense. I don't know. She wanted one to the left and one to the right of the king. She asked for those most powerful, in her mind, most powerful positions. And that lordly role, that lordly model is not for us. It's not, it's not for, for Jesus' followers. He alone claims the title Lord and He doesn't share that, that role with anyone. We're not to follow Him in that lordly role, but we're to follow Him in, in His servant role. Matthew twenty twenty eight says the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give His life as a, what? As a ransom for many. Greatness is not the goal. Service is the goal. And greatness is defined by Christ in His lifelong exercise of servanthood. For the life of Christ to be, to be reproduced and to, to, to come out in us, it has got to be through servanthood. Because that's what He told us and that's what He showed us. And only a few days later, Jesus demonstrates another compelling example of how His followers or to live, his public ministry is over. The shadow of the cross is kind of, kind of looming, and, and maybe it's at that moment that he recognizes that the disciples are just not getting it. They're, they don't, they're not grasping this idea of a humble, obedient servant. And if they don't, then the future of the church is in big trouble. And so, in the most probably unexpected, probably unforgettable act ever. Jesus he burns the image in, in our minds of service 
And he burns it into, into their minds. Here's what he did. Jesus and the twelve are in the upper room and it's Passover time. Um, it's the feast. And, uh, and John, this in chapter 13, he, he says it's time for Jesus to leave the world and go to the Father. But he must still make sure that the disciples understand one thing, and that is, is the power of love through living as servants. And he began to wash his disciples' feet. For whatever reason, no servant had washed their feet when they went into the upper room. And foot washing was generally was regarded and done by the very lowest of the lowliest of servants. And Jesus seized that moment. He seized that opportunity by doing the unthinkable. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, would be the lowliest of low servants. And He humbly pouring the water in the basin and He wraps the towel kind of around His waist. And if you look at the way that was done then, they wrapped a towel around their waist and the servant knelt before the person whose feet they were washing and they dried their, their feet off with that towel. And after this, He says to them, do you understand what I've done for you? And I, I, I've often wondered when I read that, when I read that, I wonder what is going through their minds. Think about that. What is going through their minds? Did they remember, start remembering all this stuff that Jesus said? Did they remember that He said the first to be last? Did they remember that He said, whoever, <clears throat> excuse me, whoever wants to be great among you shall be your servant? Did, he, did they remember, I'm among you as one who serves? There was hundreds of things that Jesus said like that. And, and next he takes this opportunity for the very last time to clarify for them those two roles, the, the lordly role and the, and, the, and, the, and the wearing of the robe, you know, that, what that robe represents. And he shares that with no one because he, he alone is worthy to occupy that role. And then he explains to him again about the towel representing the humble, obedient, suffering servant, a, a, a role that he modeled throughout his entire Life, and you notice in John 13, uh, starting in verse 13, 13, 13 through 15, this is what Jesus said to them. It's how he distinguished those two roles. He said, You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. He said, That is what I am. He didn't say that is what we are. He said, That is what I am. And he continues and he highlights his self chosen role of a servant. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, and so he separated those two roles. He designates the one and only role that the disciples have got to understand and the role that they've got to live. You also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. Here's the deal. The, the values of God's kingdom are different than the values of the world. The values of God's kingdom are different, radically different than the values of the world. They just are. In the world, what is how's greatness is judged by the power that you assume or the power that you have over other people. In the kingdom, greatness is judged by service to people. So I ask you, as we sit here today, what are you going to do? Are you going to live a life in the way of the robe? Or are you going to live a life in the way of the towel. Every one of us has got to decide that. So, I, I want to, as we transition here, 
and I'm going to pray for us in a minute, but I just feel led to, to say a little something else. Remember why Jesus came to service. Um, he came to service because we were hopelessly lost in our sin. We were helplessly unable to do anything for ourselves. Helplessly unable to make ourselves acceptable to God. I cannot do that for myself. There's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. So He served us by humbling Himself and coming as a servant and paying a ransom on the cross for us. And I know that there's people in here today that you want that to count for you. And I don't know who you are. You may be Catholic. You may be Buddhist. You may be Muslim. You may call yourself a Protestant. You may be Jewish. You may be an atheist. You may be a member of a church. You may not be a member of a church. I don't have, I don't, I don't have a clue. But I know that God has spoken to somebody in this room and you know that you need Christ and what He has to offer. There's three things that I want you to say. I want you to say, I want Him to forgive my sins. I want to know that I am going to heaven. I want to know that if I walk out that door and I get hammered by a bus, that I'm going to heaven. I want to know that. I want, to know, I want Him to change my life. I want hope where there's hopelessness. And I receive Him today as my Lord and Savior. And if you've done that today, if, you, if you've done that, there's a connection card in the, in the back of the seat in front of you. Just jot that down. And you don't have to, you don't have to do that. But if you do it, then, then our church body can come together and pray for you. You don't have to do that. But if you want that, you should do that. Because we want to pray for you. And then, and then when we're done today, we're going to be standing out there and I would love to talk to you. You don't have to come out there and talk to me. But I would love to talk to you because I would want to pray for you. And I know that there's people in here today that have done that. So let, let, let me pray real quick and um, we're going to finish up with a song. Lord, we love You today. We thank You so much for modeling uh, everything that You model for us. Lord, we thank You. Uh, you know, We just need to be on our knees thanking You that You came as a servant and You, you, and you died a sacrificial death on that cross, paid the ransom that I should have paid and You did it for us when we were right smack in the middle of being unlovable. You loved us anyway. And that is just the perfect model. So Lord, I thank You. Uh, I pray over our church and all of the people here. Lord, we all have needs and I know that You can fulfill every single one of those. So Lord, I lift them up to You in Your Son's precious name. Amen. Thank you, Ed. Sorry about that. Thank you, Ed. Hey guys, stand up with us. We're going to close with an offering. Uh, take that home with you today. And right now, we're going to invite our host teams to come forward and give us an opportunity to serve with our stuff. Giving God our best today so we can leverage our stuff, like Ed said a moment ago, for somebody else's forever. Let me pray for us and then listen to this last song. Worship this out with us. God, we love you. God, would you use our stuff, our resources, our lives so that we can help someone else know you and have forever with you. We thank you for the ministry of what uh, our church does through M2540, God, and how we're making a difference and a huge impact uh, serving the lost, the least, and the lonely of this city. God, would you help us grasp and 
uh, just let it soak in today that we're never closer to you than when we're loving on someone else. So God, grow us by our acts of service. But God, help us never get lost in our acts, but help us get lost in you who loved us first. So God, we give you this morning. In your name I pray. Amen.